0: You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleinman. In this week's episode, we present part two of the conversation we began last episode, a conversation about the value form paradigm and and Andrew's criticism of Patrick Murray's arguments, Patrick Murray, a prominent value form thinker. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please do visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we will continue our discussion about the value form paradigm. But first, as we do in every episode, a discussion of some issues and current events. For this current events section, we're going to be talking about a piece called You Don't Owe Joe Biden Anything, Shaming the Left is Immoral and Bad Politics. that appeared in Salon on May 9th of this year. And maybe, Andrew, you're more prepared to tackle the author's name than I am. Her
1: name is Varsha Gandikota Nalutla.
0: Sounds good to me.
1: Okay, maybe we can call her VGN or something.
0: Sounds good. Yeah, let's do that. So usually when we talk about an opinion piece like this, we begin with a short summary of the piece. I'm going to try to do that here, although I find her argument somewhat meandering. I don't think sentences and paragraphs support arguments and sub arguments, but we'll give it a shot. I mean, her main, her main concern is to talk about this, what she, what she considers this phenomena of Sanders supporters being vote shamed, uh, being told it's morally wrong to withhold their vote from Biden or to prioritize voting against Trump now. Um, and she is you know, so she goes on uh, some various digressions about this you know, She talks about how some marginalized communities and young voters don't see their issues represented by Democrats and Republicans. She doesn't actually go you know, into that. Obviously, a lot of people's lives are being threatened right now by Trump. And there was historic turnout in some primaries for Biden because they thought he represented a chance to beat Trump. Um, but she just sort of ignores all that. Um, She talks about what she calls the snobbery of political elites who present voting as a life and death issue without presenting some sort of counter argument as to why this is not a life and death issue or explaining why it would be snobbery to be concerned about the lives of tens of thousands of people. She sort of pivots instead and just does a typical like whataboutism bit and talks about Obama as deporter in chief. She interrogates interrogates this notion that citizens owe their vote to a party, you know, leaping over the whole life and death question and just going to this notion of owing a vote, although I'm not sure why, why calling something a life and death issue means someone says that people owe their vote to a party. She questions Biden's electability uh, with the typical stuff we hear from the Nistas about how he's not, you know, sort of... Appealing to people on these economistic single issue things, they say he, you know, all the sing, all these polls about single payer health care or free college education, they pull highly in these single issues. So, uh, and Biden doesn't take these positions, so he's not electable without looking at all ab- into, you know, why he was so electable in the primaries, and Sanders, even though he had all these single issue things in his platform, got completely annihilated by Biden. So there's a complete lack of self-reflection and just a continuation of the same party line. And then she says that stifling criticism of Biden will reinforce the right's attack on liberal elitism. And then she goes on to characterize Obama-Trump voters as as being motivated by anti-neoliberal sentiment and to suggest that if that sort of neoliberalism isn't questioned, then all these voters are going to be turned off by it. And then she ends with reiterating the point that withholding uh, one's vote can be a a type of bargaining power and sort of reinforcing her thesis, I guess, which is not implicit, but that this is really about social Dems taking over or exerting their power over the Democratic Party. And they can do that by withholding their vote. So what do you think about this? (laughs) I mean, just going through and trying to summarize her argument uh, is should almost serves as a critique by itself. But I mean, basically, this seems like a big hissy fit. I mean, the has lost and instead of reevaluating anyth- any of their assumptions about their tactics and uh, they she's just wants to continue the same party line um, and make this election all about the importance of uh, taking over the Democratic Party and winning people to the to the Democratic Party with economic populist proposals, even though clearly the primaries were a referendum on that strategy, and that strategy lost miserably in the primaries. I mean, sh- when she's saying, How dare you vote, Seamus, she's really saying, How dare you say that we lost for a reason and then insist that we prioritize defeating Trump uh, over continuing this pointless quest to uh, further Sanders socialism over uh, other priorities. Um, and she continues this populist line that the only way to defeat Trump is through these you know, single issue economic uh, populist proposals, even though um, there's very little evidence that that is actually can be translated into electoral victories.
1: Yeah, this is, I think, the really important critique that needs to be made. I think you're absolutely right what they keep hammering home on is their weakest point. They keep hammering home on the fact that if you give people you know, opinion polls, they'll you know, check uh, Medicare for all, free college, all this stuff, but it's not what's motivating people. OK, and, and we see this again and again and they go, well, yeah, you know, we got stuff and people like it in the abstract, but it's clearly not motivating them. And this is the road to victory. No, it's not. It, it's, it's been proven. It's, it's not the road to victory. It's been proven in this country. and It's been proven in the United Kingdom where the Labour Party tried uh, to do the same thing in the midst of an election that was basically a referendum on Brexit. Uh, and they, you know, hemmed and hawed about that and they you know, got totally, their, their clock got totally cleaned. But I'll tell you, what really struck me more than anything about this article is the kind of like bait and switch that comes really early on. She talks about, you know, this so-called tactic of shaming and the people who engage in this alleged shaming frame voting Trump out of office as a life and death question. And then she never comes back again, not once. Once, in the entire thing, I don't know it was two thousand words or whatever. She never comes back once to the question of whether it is indeed a life and death question. Right. Let me call up my Trump death clock. Um, I'm right on the, the their website. They also got you know a, a billboard, but I'm on the website, and right now the Trump death clock registers at fifty four thousand and forty two deaths due to Trump having declined to uh, act to mitigate coronavirus until March 16. If he had acted one week earlier, there would have been, according to this, estimated 54,042 fewer deaths. So, I mean, I don't see how it's not a life and death question. You can call that shaming and and, and so forth, but she's engaging in, in, in pragmatism shaming.
0: You know, speaking of bait and switch, I feel like she starts off trying to defend the right for people to withhold their vote or abstain from voting, that there's some moral defensibility there. But then she's also – she transitions into sort of talking about it as like a tactic, as part of the process of influencing the Democratic Party platform and bringing the Sandernistas into the – the larger party as like an influential player in the Biden platform. And I feel like, you know, obviously Biden has to do lots of things to try to appease and unite all the disparate elements of the Democratic Party, and that'll be essential for his strategy. And that will involve probably trying to rein in some of the Sandinistas crowd by incorporating some of their demands. Uh, but Regardless of whatever happens in that process, that doesn't mean that there is some moral case to be made for not voting against Trump if you live in a swing state. That, and that's the most irresponsible thing you could uh, open the door to, that kind of thinking.
1: You know, I noticed the same thing. And, well, really, you know, took me actually kind of by surprise that she could write this. So she says that the Biden needs to motivate voters— and the solution is not to be contemptible to the Bernie supporters. The solution is to not just tolerate debate over Biden's agenda, but to welcome it. And then she says, this is not easy for those who fear a Trump re-election. Criticizing Biden in a bid to gain progressive concessions, in their view, only wounds him and helps Trump. Notice how she has conflated debate with the criticism of Biden in an attempt to extract concessions from him that's not debate okay whether you you think that's a good top uh, tactic or not that's not debate that's not reasoned argument that's not providing you know evidence and reasons in order to persuade somebody it's a strong arm tactic to withhold your vote in order to make them do what you want you can, you could you could say that's good you could say that's bad but th- that's certainly not debate but I- i'll tell you you know i mean all of this is in service of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's agenda? <laughs> I mean, come on, people, you know? I mean, this is, you know, if, if, if this is the vision of the future, you know, that is going to animate people, I mean, it's obviously not what's animating, you know, millions of people, millions of black voters in South Carolina and elsewhere in the South and so forth. But 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 how how, you know, the warmed-over New Deal is 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 going to animate people i i just don't know
0: well that is all the time we have to discuss current events today up next part two of our discussion with andrew about the value form paradigm so one of the most important aspects of this debate over the value form paradigm is this question of what are the historically specific and essential characteristics of capitalism, the things that differentiate capitalism from other modes of production, and um, what are you know, more ephemeral or secondary characteristics of capitalist production. And as we talked about in the uh, first part of this interview, the value form paradigm really puts money in exchange at Uh, At the center of its analysis of the capitalist mode of production, it considers these to be sort of the the central and essential characteristics of capitalism. Um, When Murray is critiquing you, one of the things he says is that, you know, you have argued that it's the transformation of abstract labor into an objective property of the commodity that is what is sort of the essential historically specific nature of capitalism. Um, this idea that uh, the the products of labor and capitalism um, have this objective property of having values, um, and you know he says why is that uh, essential the essential thing and why, and then he criticizes you for not under, explaining what that has to do with money or circulation. He says that you've left up in the air the question of what how that relates to the question of money and circulation. So, what is your response to that?
1: Well, uh, he's right that in this particular paper of mine that he's responding to, I did not address why products of labor take the form of value. You know, in commodity producing societies, I've done that elsewhere. I didn't do it in that particular paper. There, in that paper, my task was. A critique of the value form paradigm. And I was making a different point. So I say that you know it's specific to capitalism that labor becomes, you know, embodied in a commodity, an objective property of the commodity. And the point I was making there is that the value form theorists have all along argued that embodied labor value theory is a social It's a Ricardian inheritance of Marx, you know, from David Ricardo. It reveals a naturalistic understanding of capitalist production. Capitalism is basically, you know, just like any other society. That's how they regard embodied labor, Marx's references to the embodiment of labor and so forth. My point was, no, they've got it completely wrong. Marx's embodied labor theory is a theory about what is specific to commodity-producing societies. When he talks about embodied labor, he's not saying that you know labor is embodied in all forms of society. I mean, in all forms of society, it takes labor to produce things, but the labor doesn't become the subjective property of the, the object that's produced. That's specific to commodity-producing societies, according to Marx. He's very clear about that. So this is not asocial. It is historically specific. It's not naturalistic. And, you know, I make this argument and Murray didn't offer any response to the point that I was making. But to answer, you know, his his query now, why do products of labor take the form of value in commodity producing societies? Why? It's a good question. You know, he says, does this have anything to do with money in circulation? Well, yeah, it has something to do with them. I mean, pretty much everything in capitalism has something to do with everything else in capitalism, right? Uh, That's kind of not getting us very far. But here's what I would say. In Marx's view, money and circulation, you know, the exchange of commodities are not the ultimate causes of the embodiment of labor or the fact that the products of labor take the form of value. The alienation of labor is the ultimate cause of that. In other words, The ultimate cause is that the worker's labor, to use Marx's expression, the worker's labor exists independently outside himself and alien to him and that it stands opposed to him as an autonomous power, close quote. I'm quoting Marx's essay on alienated labor from 1844. The worker's labor exists independently outside himself Alien to him, stands opposed to him as an autonomous power. And it's only because of that, that that labor can then be embodied, so to speak, in an object, you know, the produced commodity. And so for Marx, money and circulation, exchange, these are merely the necessary consequences of that alienation of the activity of labor. And that's because just private property you know, which is the outcome of all of this, is itself just a necessary consequence of the alienation of labor, according to Marx. He wrote, quote, the relationship of the worker to labor creates the relation of labor to the capitalist. Private property is thus the product, the result, the necessary consequence of alienated labor, of the external relation of the worker to nature and himself, the alienation. Though private property appears to be the reason, the cause of alienated labor, it is rather its consequence. Later, this relationship becomes reciprocal. So again, I'm quoting Marx. So does embodiment of labor have anything to do with money in circulation? Yes, but they are not its causes because private property is not its cause, according to Marx. I'm just referring to Marx's view here. The cause of all of this is the alienation of labor. And these are its consequences in Marx's view. Private property, once you've got private property, you've got exchange. Once you've got exchange, you've got money.
0: Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make about this claim that embodied labor is somehow an ahistorical thing to talk about. I mean, uh, in some senses, the value form paradigm treats um, capitalist production as ahistorically because it treats capitalist production as just a purely technical um, relationship of people to means of production and um, without any sense of the historic specificity of capitalist, the social relations of capitalist production, the way that Marx talks about.
1: Funny you should mention that. At the same point in my article where I say that Marx's embodied labor theory is not Ricardian, I make that exact point. It's like, well, why am I like the only person to see this? Why haven't value form theorists seen what I've just said and just repeated on, on the podcast just now? And I say it's because they have basically the same technical-laden understanding of production. You know that they, they are the ones who have you know this a naturalistic understanding of production. You talk about production to them, that's not where the sociality and the historical specificity of capitalism is located. For them, it's all in the market and money and exchange and all of that stuff. And they don't see that when Marx is talking about production in capitalism, the actual physical production process he's talking about, he, he's not just talking about any old uh, production process. He's talking about something really historically specific, something, you know, specifically capitalist. Because it's not that way to them, production they don't see it in Marx. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. You know, That I, I was making that just just that point that you were making. And, and Murray didn't respond to that point uh, that I was making either.
0: So let's move on to some other aspects of your paper. You argue that the value form theory is not even capable of arriving at several of Marx's most um, important conclusions. One, that surplus value cannot arise in circulation. And two, Um, his critique of the quantity theory of money and also his understanding of intra-firm trade. And I want to go through those um, each uh, one at a time, but can you provide a short summary of why you argue that um, Murray and the value form paradigm are incompatible with these aspects of Marx?
1: I can put it in one sentence. In all of these three cases, intra-firm trade, quantity theory of money, origin of profit. In all three cases, the value form position is incompatible with Marx's theory because Marx's arguments in each case rest squarely on the premise that commodities have determinate prices and, of course, determinate values, fully determinate before they enter into the market. Okay? So... Because that's not the value form position, either in its extreme version, you know, the exchange only version, as Murray calls it, or his co-constitutive and other people's similar versions. In, in all of these versions, it is not the case that commodities have fully determinate prices and values before they, or at least not pr- fully determinate prices before they enter the circulation. But let me try to address this in a, a, a somewhat different way as well. Like, you know, why I argue this, right? Well, I argue it first of all, because that's the case. But why do I go, you know, off of the kind of issues that like value form people tend to discuss, which is, you know, description of what's unique about capitalism and stuff. The thing is, you get these different interpretations. You got their interpretation of Marxist text. You've got, the interpretation of myself and others, temporal single system uh, in- interpretation. And how do you decide, right? Wh- wh- who is to say who's right and who's wrong? It's very, very easy for everybody to like, you know, pick their favorite passages and use that as evidence. Well, that's cherry picking evidence, right? You, you really need a strong test and really easy to get wiggle room and to, and to, and to wiggle your way out of any problem when you're just looking at passages in the text, words that you can, you know, twist and turn one way or the other. When, however, you have to show that your interpretation arrives at the same conclusion about something else that Marx arrives at, you have to show that you can use the theory as you interpret it to reach this result. That's a lot harder to do. So I like Picking in those kinds of cases, because they do provide much stronger tests than just finding some 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 words and arguing about the, the meaning of the words, right? So let, let me also say something like last time we were talking about how I approach responding to Murray, and I, I made a whole point about, well, look, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to convict him of error, uh, to use Keynes's expression. So what I'm trying to do is to demonstrate my points. One of our listeners said, okay, but this isn't really clear what you mean by demonstrate. So let me try to uh, clarify. What I mean by demonstrate is, well, it means show, or prove, or you know something like that, provide the, the needed evidence. But when I say demonstrate, I'm not just trying to convince. It's not like demonstration to a person. It's not convincing them. It's not relative like that. It's laying out what's needed so that any ideal, rational, disinterested person appropriately employing reason would come to the same conclusion that I'm coming to and could not come to any other conclusion. So I don't know, you know, actual people can do what they want. They can ignore anything and they can name call and whatever. But an ideal, rational thinker has to be brought to the point where that kind of person is given the pieces of an argument, put together in a way where not only am I providing them with the bottom line, with the conclusion, but I'm putting it all together so that they can move themselves, think it through, and take the pieces and arrive at the exact same conclusion and see that there is no other conclusion that one can arrive at. Okay, that's what I'm trying to do at least. Okay, that's what I mean by demonstrate.
0: So an argument you make in your paper is that the value form paradigm is fundamentally incompatible with Marx's theory that surplus value cannot arise in exchange. And of course, that argument from Marx is essential to his explanation of uh, exploitation of the workers as the source of surplus value. Um, so you make that argument, and then Murray responds um, by saying that that only applies to the most extreme version of value-form theory, which he calls the exchange-only variant, but that criticism doesn't respond to his co-constitutive value-form theory. Um, you know what, how, what exactly is his argument here?
1: There's one argument that he makes that is clearly his attempt to make a counter-argument. Uh, and then there, there's another thing he says, which if we interpret him very charitably, you know, uh, might be an attempt to make a second counter-argument. Let me take the first one first. He says, basically, I'm claiming that in order to demonstrate that a surplus value can't arise in exchange, what we need and what Marx needs and has is this view that commodities have determinate prices as well as values, before they enter into the market. I say, you know, if you're going to show that surplus value cannot arise in exchange, that's the premise that you need. And that's the premise that Marx have. Before the commodities go into the market, their values are already determined and their prices are already determined. Murray says, nah, you don't need that. He says it's enough to assume what Marx assumed in his demonstration that surplus value can't arise in exchange. And Murray says that what Marx assumed there is that commodities sell at their values and that their prices express their value. So in other words, their prices are equal to their value. And he says, if that's the case, then surplus value can't arise in exchange, even if, here I'm quoting Murray, even if, quote, it is only in the act of sale that those values and prices are finally determined (laughs) As value form theory contents. So that that's what Murray is claiming is that you don't need to assume that the commodities' values and prices Um, are determined before they enter into the market. All you have to assume is that they sell at
0: their value. Right. It's hard for me to follow that. What part of it is hard for you to follow? Well, I don't follow. What does the determining in his conception? Ah, like he's talking about, ah. like he's talking about the moment of determination. But what are the things that do the determining? Yeah, right. The determinant,
1: yes, or the determinants.
0: So he's arguing that value is determined prior to exchange, but then it's finally or ultimately determined at the moment of exchange. marks this argument about surplus value. Is, is, am I following this? And he claims somehow this distinction allows him to explain how surplus value does not arise in circulation.
1: His argument about surplus value not arising in exchange is if we assume that the commodities exchange at their values.
0: But that means they have a value already, or are they...
1: Yeah, so, so what, what he really needs to say is that they have a potential value that that value is their actual value and that they sell for that actual value. Right, right,
0: value. right. Those are the steps. Okay,
1: that, that's that's the really you know properly logical way of, of, of making the argument. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what he right. meant. Okay. Okay, so if that's the case, then the, the potential value becomes the actual value, value and there's no problem right. at all.
0: Right, right. So then the discussion seems to hinge on this question of uh, what he means by finally determined. It's not clear to me what the... F- forces are the determinants are at this final moment and how they're different from the, the moment before exchange
1: i look i assume that when they say here are the determinants of value that they're basically talking about you know a pretty plain reading of marx's capital determinants of value when it comes to determinants of price either the potential before exchange or the actuality in and through exchange It's a lot less clear to me, much less clear to me. I don't think that the, I I have never read anything systematic in terms of a theory or anything systematic in terms of an interpretation from them about what are the, the, the determinants. What we get is some general sense of market phenomena mattering and affecting things, but that's not a complete, you know, description. Or account of what are the various factors uh, that go into making price what it is and not some other price, right? That's what that's what you would want. It's not there, spe- especially in, in Murray's work. He he in this in this one counter argument, which might be his only counter argument, he's not getting into any of that because he's made an assumption that evades all of that, and the assumption is. That the commodities exchange at their value as determined in production, you know, and that the market has no effect. So, th- so he, you know, so he's saying, look, if the market has no effect, then the market has no effect. Well, yeah, it's a tautology, right? But, but, but the thing is, he says that this was Marx's assumption, and that's not true.
0: We should get into that because I think people often make mistakes about when Marx does and does not um, equate price and value and in- when that is or isn't important for arguments that he makes.
1: He's saying that in Chapter
0: 5 of Volume 1 of
1: Capital, that is the chapter in which Marx demonstrates that surplus value, extra value, profit, cannot arise in exchange. That's where Marx demonstrates it. Chapter 5, Volume 1. Murray is claiming that the premise of Marx's demonstration in Chapter 5, Volume 1, is that the commodities exchange at their values. They sell for their values. So there's no difference between their value and their price. And therefore the sum of all the prices is equal to the sum of all the values because every single price is equal to every single value. The market doesn't change anything. And therefore the market doesn't change anything. That's the tautology. The, The problem is it's just completely false Marx did not, did not, did not assume in chapter five of volume one that the commodities are exchanging at their values. He begins, he says, okay, if they exchange at their values, here's the way it works. And then he says, well, let's imagine that, you know, some of them exchange for more than their values. Okay. And then he says, here still, you're not going to get surplus value arising in exchange because the gains that some people get in exchange are exactly offset by the losses of other people in exchange if one person sells something for more than it's worth the other one is paying more than it's worth so if one person sells for you know $12 something for $12 more than it's worth somebody on the opposite side of this that transaction is shelling out $12 you know more than it's worth And the $12 gain of the one is equal to the $12 loss of the other. And, you know, so it's a zero-sum game. It's a wash. There's no uh, profit being made in the aggregate in this way, you know. Okay. And then Marx even, like, you know, this guy's, like, good. He he, he tracks down every little possibility. He says, let's imagine, like, we got this generalized inflation. Let's imagine, for instance, that all commodities – Across the board, everything sells, you know, for let's say 10 percent more than it's worth, and he shows that even in that case, even in that case, the sur- there's not going to be extra profit, surplus value arising in exchange. That's the the, the 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 great bulk of it's a short chapter, but it's the great bulk of chapter five of volume one of Capital. It does not depend on. The, the things exchanging at their values. that's one case. He looks at the case where they don't. He looks at the case where all commodities exchange for more you know than, than their value. You know there's this myth out there that oh, in volume one Marx assumes that the uh, commodities exchange at their values, the prices equal values and so forth. It, it, it comes at a particular point in volume one, that assumption. It, it's not there prior to, the very, very, very end of chapter five. After going through all of this stuff and showing that it doesn't matter if prices are, you know, bigger than values, if all prices are bigger than all values, it doesn't matter. You're not going to explain the profit arising in that way. At that point, says Mark, says, "Well, so let's let's assume that they sell at their values, and that'll make things simple because we can't explain it any other way." That comes at the very end of chapter five. And nowhere before do you see that assumption in volume one of Capital. It it, it just isn't there. And when Marx makes that assumption, it's as clear as day what he's saying, okay? So it's not in chapter one, two, three, four. And when Marx is demonstrating in chapter five that surplus value cannot arise in exchange, he is is not assuming that the price is equal to values. He's doing something general, uh, it's not some very narrow and unrealistic special case that he's dealing with. That, that That's what Murray is giving us, you know, some, some unrealistic special case that never actually happens. Yeah, well, let's assume that all the prices equal all the values, and there's no problem, sure. But what about reality? Marx is dealing with the reality. You know, he says no surplus value arises in exchange. Murray's response is, well, in this, you know, Unrealistic situation that never occurs, there would not be any surplus value that arises in exchange. Granted, what about reality?
0: Right, right. Well, that was good. I think we hit a bunch of important points here, but uh, Murray has another counter argument, right?
1: Maybe he's got another counter argument. It, it's hard to tell. You know, he briefly goes into this. Oh, we don't need to assume that the, the prices and the values are determined before the commodities enter the market. We just need to assume that the prices equal to values. Then he goes off on this, like, really long digression uh, almost 2,000 words. Uh, and it's about the digression's about why he doesn't think the commodities' prices or values are fully determinant before the commodities enter the market, um, which is not the question. You know that he's supposedly addressing, which is, can value form theory come to the same conclusion as Marx that surplus value does not arise in exchange? But he's going into this long digression about his view of why commodities prices and values are not fully determined before the commodities enter the market. But at the end of this very long digression, he makes another point, and it's a point about gains and losses of value in exchange. It might just be part of that general digression, that point at the end, but on a charitable reading, you can construe it as a second kind of attempted counter-argument to to my demonstration in, in my critique. Here's what he wrote. He says that in order to, quote, defend the notion of gains and losses in exchange, it is not necessary for commodities prices to be fully determined before the commodities enter into the prices of exchange. All that's needed is that, quote, commodities have valid prices, which was the observational basis of Marx's theory of value. If a commodity has a valid price and is sold above or below that price, it'll be one person's gain and another's loss, just as Marx argues, close quote.
0: So what what does Murray mean by valid prices? Because that confuses me.
1: I don't really know what he means by valid prices. Uh, I I researched the question. Uh, he has a whole paper where he goes into it, and I researched it. I read every word carefully. I still don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Well, uh, leaving aside the question of valid prices and what he means by that, what do we make of his argument?
1: Irrespective of this valid stuff, Murray is saying, okay, if a commodity has a okay, valid price and it's sold above or below that price, it'll be one person's gain and another's loss, just as Marx argues. Problems with that argument really don't depend on the word valid. The problems are, are elsewhere. Okay, so I've got a response, but it doesn't hang on, on, on this issue of, 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 of valid. Okay, first of all, say he says it'll be one person's gain and another's loss. Well, obviously, what one gains, the other loses. The question is whether additional profit or surplus value can arise in that process of gain and loss. So what I think Murray was trying to argue here is that the gainer's gain and the loser's loss exactly offset one another. In each case, and therefore in the aggregate, so that it's a wash, zero sum game, exchange just redistributes the the value, some gain, some lose to an equal extent, and in the aggregate, there's no additional value, surplus value, profit arising. I think that's what Murray wants to say.
0: Right, but it's not clear to me how that helps his argument, because this is not possible unless commodities already have value prior to exchange bingo that they were just that this is this idea that i mean mark's argued there's a zero-sum game and that some people can be winners and losers but that's because the values are predetermined and surplus value has already been created so so how does this help why why is mark uh, murray using this to help him and understand what his what he's trying to do
1: well you, you you just answered the whole thing in a nutshell give this man the car you just won the car <laughs> This is it. This is no. This is it, Brendan. He can't do it. He can't. He can't say what he's saying. On the basis of his theory, it doesn't work. Yeah. It just does not work. Let me try to expand on this. But yeah, you get. You got it in a nutshell. In in this co-constitutive th- theory of his, the commodities enter the market with one set of prices. They exit the market with a whole other set of prices. The potential pre-exchange prices are just replaced by the actual post-exchange prices, just like Paul Samuelson and the transformation algorithm. You write down one set of prices, you erase them, now you write down a different set of prices. And so in in this co-constitutive theory, the potential pre-exchange values and prices become actual post-exchange values and prices just by disappearing and being replaced by other ones. And these actual post-exchange prices are not fully determined by what came before, by the potential pre-exchange prices or values. This is fundamental to value form. This is the fundamental value form tenet, whether we're talking about the extreme version or the co-constituted version. They all say that. So what's the consequence of that? The consequence is that there is no conservation law that regulates the total Price or the total value in value form theory. Nothing that carries over and says that the sum of the potential prices pre-exchange has to equal the sum of the, the, the actual values and prices as a result of exchange. They, they don't have to be equal, it could be double, it could be half as much, it could be a thousand times as much, it could be one hundredth as much. There, there's no conservation law. And that's because this potential. Prior to exchange is not fully determining the magnitudes of the actual post exchange prices. So, for instance, imagine a generalized rise in demand. You know, we get out of this de- de- depression, and there's a whole lot of spending out there. Generalized rise in demand. There is nothing in value form theory that would say that the sum total of the actual post exchange prices can't be bigger than the sum total of the potential pre exchange prices or values. You know, the the rise in demand could make everything more valuable. And if that occurs, then bingo, what do you have? Additional surplus value or profit arising in exchange. This is just unavoidable once once exchange has this additional role in some unspecified way so that there is no conservation from pre-exchange to post-exchange. Let me put the same thing differently. Murray gives us the following sentence. If a commodity has a valid price and is sold above or below that price, it will be one person's gain and another's loss, just as Marx argues. Murray wrote that, but he has no warrant to write it. His value form theory forbids him from writing that. Commodity has a valid price, is sold above or below that price. Okay? That makes no sense in light of his theory. All he can properly say is that the commodity had a valid potential price prior to sale, and that after the sale, it no longer has that price. Okay, So he can't say that it has a valid price and is sold above or below that price. All he could properly say is it had a valid price, it's now sold for more or less than that value that it had. But because it no longer has that price, it's been. it's not possible to say that it's been sold for more or less than it is now worth. So the whole concept of gains and losses in exchange has no meaning here in, in, in value form theory. That means that things are sold for more or less than they're now worth, not for more or less than they were worth back in 1943.
0: So in addition to all the problems that value form theory has with explaining surplus value the way Marx does, um, you say it also has a problem with explaining intra-firm trade, and I think that's a topic people are less familiar with. Can you explain what, what, what your argument is here?
1: Intrafirm trade is a big deal in reality and when it comes to issues of taxation and, 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 and tax avoidance and, and, and stuff international. But basically it means one part of a firm or company, a parent company, a subsidiary, makes products at one stage of production and a different part of the company uses those products as inputs into a further stage uh, of production. So in effect, one part of the company is selling inputs to a different part of the same company or a subsidiary is, is selling to the parent company. For instance, take cars, general Motors plants in different parts of the world. One produces engines, one produces axles, one produces carburetors, and so forth. And then these all come to some GM assembly operation somewhere else in the world. So they're all shipped, you know, to the the assembly uh, operation. So the GM auto assembly operation is buying its inputs from GM part suppliers. Okay. Part of the same parent company. That's intra-firm
0: trade. And Marx talks about this?
1: Yeah. I mean, he hasn't used the term intra-firm trade, but in this manuscript, that almost made it into volume one of Capital. And kind of like at the last moment, Mark said, nah, I don't see that I'm going to be publishing volume two of Capital in any, book two anytime soon. So I don't need a transition. Manuscript was meant to be a transition to, you know, coming in our next book. You'll...
0: This is the results of the immediate process of production.
1: Yeah, the results of the immediate process of production. In the Penguin edition, these results... You know, this manuscript results is, is, is there at the end of volume one. Uh, you can also find it uh, online. Anyway, this, this is a very late manuscript compared to like publication of volume one. It was written almost right before uh, Marx finalized volume one and put it out. In, in the results of the immediate process of production, Marx has a few pages discussing a case which is, you know, exemplary of what we now call intrafirm firm trade. And he's, he discusses a farmer, a capitalist farmer, not just, you know, a peasant or something, a capitalist farmer that produces seed or, you know, produces some sort of grain and uses some of that grain as seed, you know, in next year's production. So instead of uh, some of the grain they produce going to market, the, the farmer holds some of that grain, sells it to himself, so to speak, and puts it in the ground the next year to produce more grain and so forth and so on. So that, that, that's, that, that is definitely intra-firm trade, you know, and Marx was discussing it in that context of what are the implications of the fact that, you know, some portion of this product does not go into the market. You know, there's no money changing hands. There's no exchange. Does this matter?
0: Right, so does it matter? And what does this have to do with critiquing Murray and the value form paradigm?
1: Well, uh, what I'm trying to say is that their theory can't arrive at the same conclusions as Marx. And what we've got in this case is, to them, this really, really matters. And to Marx, it doesn't matter. And that's a very different conclusion, and they can't reach it. Okay, here's, here's what Marx wrote in this manuscript. So we're talking about capitals, farmers produce seed. They employ some of the seed in their own production rather than selling it on the market. Marx wrote that this is, quote, immaterial, immaterial. It is unimportant whether, as in the case of seed and farming, a portion of the product is at once employed by the producer as a means of labor, or whether it is first sold and then converted back into a means of labor. It doesn't matter whether they sell it or not, or whether they, so to speak, sell it to themselves. You can't get much clearer than that, okay? And Marx's reasoning is that the products that the farmer produces that he himself employs as inputs, quote, become commodities he has bought or that can be bought. They've long since become commodities in his eyes. The seed that he produces and uses himself, it's not like a peasant, you know, who's farming and, oh, good, I've produced some some seed. He's using it himself, but he, he could sell it. It's a commodity in his eyes. Since they are articles, means of labor, at the same time values forming part of his capital. And when he returns them into production without passing through the market, he includes them in his calculation as things sold himself as, as producer. That's what Marx says.
0: So they have, it's their commodities and they have prices and values and they do not enter the exchange prices at all. So right. there's no right. way for value form theory to, um, or the value form paradigm to explain what how Marx comes to this argument. Um, well, I
1: don't think so. Murray thinks so. We can talk about who's right.
0: Yeah, so Murray has a um, discussion of this.
1: Yeah, uh, sort of. Yeah. Basically, you know, in my paper, when I present this, I'm saying, okay, look, you guys tell me the difference Mm
0: -hmm.
1: between the portion of the seed that the farmer sells to others and the portion of the seed that he sells to himself. You know, tell me the difference between the revenues that he obtains in the market, the farmer, by selling the stuff and those that he obtains through intra-firm trade when he sells to himself. Or tell me the difference between the cost that he incurs by buying stuff in the market and the cost that he incurs by, you know, producing this stuff and, and, and buying from himself. You know, can, can, can value form theory make any sense uh, of this, you know? And basically, the way to make sense of it is to say, look, it's all the same whether it goes through the market or not. And so it's a challenge, you know, to value form theory can you, on the basis of your theory, explain what is basically immaterial, and in Marx's view, was immaterial, and 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 and, and or, or do you have to say that the farmer is not selling to himself and he doesn't get any profit and so forth, right? So Murray's response is kind of unfortunate. Let me read it to you. Kleinman asks, what is the difference between the portion of the seed the farmer sells to others and the portion he sells to himself? Murray says, the difference is this. In the case of what he sells to others, the farmer receives money for the seed. The value of the seed has definitively actualized itself, whereas he has no money as yet from the seed that he, quote, sells to himself. Marx's point is that if the seed is used successfully in producing the next harvest of grain, and the grain is sold at a price that passes through the value of the seed that the farmer, quote, sold, close quote, to himself, then the value of the seed passes through. So the thing gets a value if, it, if it, somewhere down the line, something eventually sells. But this is contingent, Murray continues. If the seed goes bad in the ground because of too much, or too little rain, then the potential value of the seed is lost and the farmer never sees the money that was on his books. So Murray's basic argument is that all of this is potential until the moment of truth, and the moment of truth is when you got something, either the product or the product of the product or the product of the product, something produced using inputs using inputs that then goes to market, and that's what determines retroactively the the, the whole thing, you know, or maybe not retroactively, but 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 you know wh- wh- whether the any 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 of this has a value is all only that fully determined and confirmed if something sells on the market, some ultimate result of this sells on the market.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a problematic Well,
1: argument. I anticipated the argument in my paper, and I pre-responded to it. I have a, a mm. footnote that basically says, hey, value formists, don't go there because you can't go there. And he went there mm-hmm. anyway. <laughs> Here's the sentence that I wrote. Quote, Note that in the case of products such as seed, there exists no eventual final consumer whose purchase turns ideal price into actual price. Okay, what Murray is telling us is, oh, somewhere down the line, there's a market with somebody who actually buys the stuff and that resolves all the problem. And in the exact kind of case that Marx is dealing with in the results of the immediate process of production, there ain't no such person year after year, this farmer produces seed, sells some of it to himself, buys some of it from himself, plants it, grows new grain, some of which he withholds from the market, sells to himself, buys from himself, uses the next year's production, and so on and so forth ad infinitum. So you know this Deus ex machina of this eventual final consumer, that th- that person does not exist here. That that disposes of Murray's attempted counter demonstration here. It- 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 he 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 doesn't have recourse to that. He has to actually deal with the 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 fact of intra firm trade and firms buying and selling to themselves. And you know is that actual value? Is that not actual value? You know, have they made profit? Have they not made profit? And it's got to do that without recourse to, you know, there being some eventual final consumer who is not them down the line. Because in the case of seed, you don't have that. In the case of, uh, let's say, oh, electricity producers. That's a great case. You know, electric power companies. They, they they supply electric power to themselves as well as others. So there's all these kinds of cases. Do, do, do the electric power companies generate profit or, or not from the portion of the electricity that they sell to themselves. The, how can value form theory possibly deal with this? I mean, it, it, it's, 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 it's talking about something that's not the capitalism that I recognize.
0: Okay, so we've talked about how value form theory can explain Marx's argument that surplus value can't arise in exchange. And now we've discussed its difficulties in uh, theorizing intra-firm trade. And your last demonstration is about Marx's argument, or Marx's critique of the quantity theory of money and how that can't be understood within the value form theory. Can you lay that out for us? In chapter three of
1: volume one of Capital, Marx trashes what we now call the quantity theory of money. He didn't use that term But the quantity theory of money basically says that the sum of all prices, you know, like the total amount selling in the market at a particular time, like a year, according to the quantity theory of money, what sets, determines the sum of these prices is the quantity of money that's in circulation. And Marx absolutely loathed this, and he puts forward a different, theory, which is the diametric opposite, which was not original to him, and he provides an argument against uh, the quantity theory of money. And that argument against the quantity theory of money rests on the idea that the commodities have determinate, fully determinate prices, as well as fully determinate values before they enter into the market. So what I'm saying is that to answer the quantity theory of money, Marx employs a premise that is the diametric opposite of what both versions, exchange only and co-constitutive, both versions of value form theory say, and that he needs, and I go on and I say, this is the premise that is needed to refute, disprove the quantity theory of money. It's only on the basis of this that a proof can be coming.
0: Right. And Murray has some kind of counter-argument here, presumably?
1: Well, he didn't really have much of a counter-argument. He wrote one sentence, I guess, in an effort to dismiss the issue. And then he hurried along. The sentence is this from Murray, quote, what is required to refute the quantity theory of money is not that the prices of commodities are finally determined before they enter the market, but only that they have valid prices close quote. But I don't consider that an argument because there was no attempt to prove this or even to provide an argument in support of it. Well, he's not right. Um, it, it is required, which is what I said, to, uh, in order to refute the quantity theory, they, the, the prices have to be finally determined before they enter the market. Murray's wrong here for basically the same reason that his attempt to get around a surplus value arising in exchange by talking about valid prices is wrong. The core issue is that in his version of value form theory, as well as the others, the actual post-exchange prices are not fully determined by events that precede exchange. So they're not fully determined by the sum of the potential pre-exchange prices, whether we're talking about valid, invalid, semi-valid, whatever kind of prices. Okay, the issue is actually really simple and really straightforward, and I can explain it the thing is, one does need to kind of like slow down and think it through. If you think it through, it, it's really easy and straightforward. But you do have to think. So, assume that gold serves as money, which is what Marx was assuming in Chapter uh, Three. The people he was criticizing, you know, were operating on the same assumption because that that was in fact the the case. Okay, gold served as money. So, if you think about a situation like that, what is determining the total price at the moment of exchange of all of the commodities. Well, the total price of the sum of all of these commodities is the amount of gold for which they exchange. It is that. So if you have, for instance, a whole bunch of stuff that sells and it's exchanged for, let's say, 500 ounces of gold, then 500 ounces is the total price of this stuff. So the, the total price... 500 ounces of gold is the amount of gold, right? That those are one and the same thing. That's the hard thing to get one's head through, head around, but it, but it has to be the case. Okay, now here's the problem. In value form theory, including the co-constitutive variant, commodities only have potential prices prior to being exchanged. Their actual prices can differ from the potential prices. And these actual prices are partly determined by what takes place in exchange. So in Marx's theory, it works all really easily. Marx says, no, the quantity of money in existence is not what determines the prices. The sum of prices to be realized, the amount of stuff you need to sell for, that's determined prior to exchange. So the, 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 the commodities enter the market already having a price of 500 ounces of gold. So how much gold do they exchange for? Uh, You know, 500 ounces. It's already been determined. So what Mark says is that the quantity of money that's actually in circulation is already determined by the sum of prices to be realized, 500 ounces. Only 500 ounces of gold enter into the circulation because that's what the commodities are worth, 500 ounces. What happens to the rest of the gold? You know, it, it, it's in the banks. It's God knows where, but it's not circulating in the market. So that's Marx's theory, and he says, "Look, it's not the su- it's not the quantity of money that's determining the sum of the prices to be realized. It's the sum of prices to be realized that's determining how much money actually enters the market to exchange with them." Right? Okay. Very, very simple. But if you got value form theory in the co-constitutive version in the Stream version, doesn't matter. You don't have that. The sum of prices, to be realized, is not fully determined fully before they enter into the market. So they enter the market with only potential prices, not actual prices. And so their potential price is 500 ounces of gold. What's their actual price? Oh, well, that partly depends on what happens in exchange. 500 ounces, 700 ounces, 346 ounces. God knows. Okay, so is the amount of gold that enters into circulation fully determined by these pre-exchange sum of prices? No, not at all. Exchange has a role to play here. So maybe only 300 ounces of gold enter into exchange for whatever reason. So the commodities exchange for 300 ounces of gold, which means that their total prices. Their actual total price is not the 500 ounces of gold, it's 300 ounces of gold. So what's the implication of this? The sum of prices that's being determined here, which is not 500 ounces, the one going in, but 300 ounces, the one coming out of exchange, that sum of prices has been determined by the total quantity of money in circulation. 300 ounces. That is the quantity theory of money that is the forerunner of modern monetarism. You know, Milton Friedman and and all of that. It's what Marx opposed, you know, four square opposition, but it's what value form theory implies. So the the point, very simply, is that in contrast to Marx's theory, value form theory can't possibly say that the amount of gold that's in circulation is dictated by the sum of prices to be realized, the pre-exchange prices. It has to say that those were only potential prices that actual prices can differ and that the magnitudes of actual prices are partly determined by what happens in exchange you know which means how much gold they happen to sell for so the amount of gold they happen to sell for is partly determining their prices let's imagine you had a value form theorist who who did try to argue Marx was right. The amount of gold that's in circulation is dictated by the sum of prices to be realized. Fully determined pre-exchange prices, that's what sets the amount of gold that circulates. Let's imagine they they, they try to make that argument. What they'd be arguing, in effect, is that the sum of actual post-exchange prices has to equal equal the sum of potential pre-exchange prices. But what's that mean? It means exactly that exchange plays no role in determining the magnitude of total price. And that's a repudiation of the core of value form theory, including, including Murray's version.
0: Hey, before we run out of time, here are a few words from Anne Jaclard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast.
2: Hello, this is Anne Jaclard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancip- emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements, of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice.
0: Well, that's all the time we have today on this episode of Radio Free Humanity. Please stop by Marxist Humanist to hear more episodes. Leave a comment, leave a donation. Please, if you like the podcast, tell your friends, tell your enemies, spread it around, and we hope to hear from you soon.